Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, man. I mean, if we can pull that off, we'd be set like, like a jumbo jet, because people still say that, right? No, they don't. Yeah. We're really excited about today's episode. This is the first in a four-part series on Russia that we are doing. And today we're going to be talking about Russia Today from a holistic perspective. Joining us today is the authority on just that, Sean Guillory. He is a PhD in Russian history from UCLA. He's a podcaster and blogger of Sean's Russia Blog and Sean's Russia Blog Podcast at S-E-A-N-S, Sean's Russia Blog.org, or your favorite podcatcher. Uh, he's frequently published by some pretty big deal media. He's active in journalism. He really knows what he's talking about. We're really excited to have him. Go check him out if you want to know what's going on about Russia at seansrussiablog.org. Sean, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Sean, I want to start with a question that I think is something that Americans and other Westerners find very enigmatic uh, and tough to penetrate. And... From a high level about Russia, it's who's in charge. We know that Putin sits at the top of the pyramid, but we hear a lot about oligarchs. Uh, there is a parliament in Russia. Uh, there is a prime minister, which Putin was for a while when Medvedev was president. So to some extent, the organization of how Russia is led politically is a little bit opaque. I'd love to know what's going on with with that and what is putin's relationship with these other bodies including the oligarchs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well it's it's important i think to understand how russia is ruled in a historical context because in in many respects the way it's ruled today is is how it's been ruled in, in several different periods in the past whether that be in the tsarist period or the soviet period um certainly putin is the guy he's the main decider uh he is the the most powerful figure in the government and in Russian politics in general, and it has been the case like that for a very long time. But I think it's a mistake to actually think about the leadership of Russia in terms of one guy, even if that guy has a lot of power. Because more often than not throughout through in Russian history, there is more of a collective leadership. And by this I mean you may have one guy who's the decider, but you have people below him, very close associates, people who've worked with Putin for a very long time. Uh, some of them are brought in periodic, new people brought in, 
Um, but a lot of the, the circle around Putin dates back to his early days in the 1990s in St. Petersburg. And these people have their own sources of power, their own positions, and they are, it's best to think of them as a collective Putin, more than just an individual guy. Some of them may be oligarchs. They may be personal friends of him that have been enriched because of his rule. They may be government ministers. But I think what's really important to consider when you think about how Russia is ruled is that position actually isn't that important in the sense of just because you are the chief of staff within, within the Kremlin doesn't mean necessarily mean you hold a lot of power. You could be Putin's personal friend, or like, for example, somebody like Igor Sechin, who is the head of Rosneft, the state oil company, who technically is not in the government, but he still has a lot of influence over Putin's, how Putin understands the world, how he understands oil politics, and how he rules Russia. And this was the case under Stalin. There's actually a wonderful new book by a very good Soviet historian, Sheila Fitzpatrick, looking at the team around Stalin. And looking at how these players influence Stalin's views on things and how in some cases they could actually push him and convince him in other ways even check his decision making. So it's it's very important to look at this as a, as a, as a holistic thing rather than I think focusing on one guy, one ascribes a lot of power to one man in a very complex system. And I think by only looking at one man, we don't actually considered the constraints that he's working under, even with his, within his own government. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, obviously the economy kind of went into a tailspin. The, a lot of what's really let Russia survive since then has been oil and export of energy. And Putin was able to, as far as I understand it, construct some sort of system basically around himself. I mean, a lot of commentators in the West will talk about crony capitalism or a mafia state, and I think this is all sensational to a degree, but as I understand it, he is somewhat of a linchpin right now in the system, if you want to describe the system being the economy, the the political system, or the political economy both really being one and the same thing. So understanding that there are more than one player, or that there there's more than just Putin in Russia, how important is he today? And if he were to disappear tomorrow, I mean, what would some of the consequences be? Yeah, he's the linchpin. He's the he's the arbiter of of disputes. He's the guy. If you have two major big players who have a dispute politically, economically, he's the one who decides who gets what and how that dispute is settled. This is how elite politics has worked in Russia for a very long time. And and as because he holds so much authority over various factions within his circle. He, his power as arbiter is really key. So one can imagine if Putin, you know, left tomorrow or he decided to retire or he died, one could expect a lot of jostling and a lot of infighting to decide who's going to come out on top. We saw this after Lenin. We saw this after Stalin. We saw this after even when Gorbachev came to power. We saw this even after Khrushchev was removed from power and Brezhnev became the, the head of the Soviet Union. You see this in, in other periods in Tsarist Russia where the line of succession isn't exactly clear or it's disputed and you have a lot of conflicts amongst top elites as to who's going to be the person put forward to act as that leader, that arbiter of disputes. And this is, this is very much the case. Now, the thing is, is that in some cases, and if you look at 
Putin's uh, tenure over the last 17 years, you can see p- different periods of his rule where he may have less power, more power, or somehow he holds a balance. And I think right now, in the last four or five years in particular, he, uh, I think, has consolidated his personal power probably more than any other period before. One of A lot of people have... Uh, Discussed why did Putin come back for a third term? And I and I, I bring this up because I think it's illustrative of p- potentially how the power dynamic works. Why didn't they allow? Why didn't he allow Medvedev to go for a second term? Why did he come back for a third term? One of the ideas behind why he came back is not necessarily that he um, pushed to come back to power, but in many respects he was pulled back into power, and he was pulled back into power by groups, very powerful groups of people in his circle who felt that Medvedev could not guarantee their continued extraction of rents from the government. Because one of the things, too, is that, take corruption, and I mean, you mentioned the idea of a mafia state, and um, I mean, this is, I think, quite sensational. Nevertheless, corruption plays a very important role in the system, but corruption functions as both a way to maintain elite loyalty but it is also a way to discipline the elite at the same time. And one of the problems presented before Putin now with the economic situation constricting is, and you can, you can see it in the, the crackdowns on various high-profile people in anti-corruption cases over the last year, and that is to redefine the rules to you can steal, but just not too much. So what you do is, in order to constrict the, you know, to... to implement the don't steal too much you start knocking on a couple of people's heads that have egregious like people who are one of the governors in in the far east had like tons of cash in his apartment you make these real egregious examples to send the message look you guys of course can continue to steal but the way the situation is you just can't do it as you were doing it before sure there's some there's some limits to uh there's some limits to the mayhem right yeah, there is some limits to the mayhem because that I think rests in Putin, one of Putin's power centers is his ability to define the rules of the game. To define not just the rules of the game amongst for society like a social contract of sorts, but define the rules of the game which more importantly is his own elite and he has to balance these forces because if he doesn't allow them to steal, they'll get rid of him, right? So it, this is this is the balance of the game that he has to constantly play. I mean, it's it's such an interesting. I mean, it's really almost a perspective shift, right? Because in the West, when we think about politics or we think about economics, we or we think about the justice system, we tend to think of them as separate items. And of course, you know, theoretically they're not. But in in a world where free market capitalism, you know, to a certain degree is is fairly prominent, it it at least theoretically makes sense to do that at some level but if if you're analyzing russia they're all intricately linked i mean they're really almost all the same different sides of the same coin three-sided coin if you wanted to say that but it really takes kind of a different perspective to start to approach analyzing the current situation today 
Mm-hmm. It, it, it does. And, and another approach that also requires for us to consider the role of institutions in and of themselves. Like, so, for example, you mentioned here in the West, we have a tendency to fetishize the faceless bureaucracy of, say, the legal system, right? The legal system functions because there's law and people follow the laws and do their jobs and they're professional, et cetera, et cetera. In, in Russia, Russia is a place that's to a large extent deinstitutionalized. In the sense that the institutions have always had a weakness to them, um, but because of the concentration of power in the center around, say, a figure like Putin or even a, a small circle of very powerful people around him, institutions don't have a lot of room to function on their own. They've been weakened because power is concentrated so centrally. They're not allowed to get. They're not allowed space to say implement the job they're supposed to do. So as a way to fill that gap, Russian politics also has a very personalized nature. So instead of saying, okay, you have a problem out in the provinces, you have your institutions of governance out in the provinces, and they're supposed to, let's say there is a, um, I don't know, a big criminal scandal or political scandal or something. Well, you know, one would expect, okay, if you have a scandal, you have police who find evidence, they put the guy on trial, etc., etc. The problem is, is that because of the personalization of politics, that guy either controls or has people around him that controls all those mechanisms of local power. So this presents a problem to the center. So this presents a problem for Putin saying, okay, I need to get rid of this guy because he's an embarrassment, he's not loyal, whatever the reasons is. The only way for Putin to do this, since he can't rely on local institutions, is to use his own personalized network to knock that guy down. It's really interesting because Russia has, there's a lot of personalized power, but there's very poor governance. With respect to that network of people that Putin is depending on, the impression I'm getting is that we can broadly define them as three groups. There's the people that are loyal to Putin and have been for a long time, and they know that if I stick with Putin, things are generally going to go well with me. Yeah, he's a guarantor of their interests. Right. There's a group of people that are happy with Putin right now because they are winning enough, but they are somewhat independent actors. I guess these are often called the oligarchs. And as long as they keep winning, they'll behave. And then there's a group of people, some of them also maybe being oligarchs, that are like an active problem for Putin that he has to try to put down, purge. We've heard this word a lot in Russia. And so what I'm wondering is, let's say that they get unhappy with Putin. You know, to some extent, the economy is shrinking, oil prices are low, the sanctions are hard. So some of these guys, in particular, the very wealthy ones are the ones that are looking to make a lot of wealth, are not doing as well as they've done recently. Now, they may be looking ahead and saying, this is the best we've got, etc. So what I'm wondering is, if they're going to, if they decide they're tired of Putin, how would they get rid of him? And how risky do you think things are for Putin right now, now that the economy is shrinking? There's a risk, because one of the ideas is that, well... Um, a friend of mine who's very, very smart, knows Russia very well, Mark Galiati, you might be familiar with him. He, he says repeatedly, and I think he's right, that what's going to get rid of Putin is going to be essentially a palace coup. 
it's going to be a scenario in which you just laid out, whereas members of the elite, enough of the inner circle says, you know, Vladimir Vladimirovich, you've been a wonderful servitor to the Russian state, but now it's time for you to go into retirement and enjoy the last days of your life, right? It will be something like, it will be something like Khrushchev, because to do otherwise, like to repeat the scenario of 1991, where you have a conservative coup against Gorbachev, where you actually use military, it creates a scenario in which things can get out of control, which is exactly what happened. You had a scenario in which you had an elite coup that failed, because and it mobilized masses of people to basically destroy the entire system. So you have, you, I think amongst this elite that has a very, of course, has a living memory of the collapse of the Soviet Union, any change of power, I think, is going to be a much more negotiated outcome than something like we saw, say, even a violent palace coup or some sort of orchestrated mass uprising or revolution. Um, because these people are very conservative and they're very conscious they're afraid of the masses because they've seen what can happen. In terms of Putin's da in danger, I, I don't see it, and I don't see any evidence to suggest that his political position at this point is in any problems or, or, or troubles. I just haven't... There was speculation once the United States Institute and European Union instituted sanctions that this would create a dynamic in which elites seeing their pocketbooks shrink they would somehow come together and uh, get rid of, of Putin. Well, it hasn't happened. And it doesn't. there's no indication of it being that because, let's be honest here, yeah, these people care about their pocketbook, but they're also patriots. They also believe in Russia. You know, I don't... I never understood this... I never understood this tendency of um, people outside of Russia to analyze Russia as a possessing a class consciousness, the Russian people possessing a class consciousness that seems no one on the face of the earth seems to have, which is to say, if the economy sucks, they're going to rise up and get rid of Putin. I mean, we just don't have populations that class conscious. The same thing with the elites to suggest, well, all they care about is money. Therefore, if their pocket book is being hit too hard, they'll get rid of Putin. Well, maybe at some point, sure, but that also suggests that they, there aren't other ideologies that are in their heads that makes them behave in certain ways, right? So it, it's it's far more complex than than we give it credit for. Yeah, that's a great insight. And what it makes me think of is this fourth group I didn't think of, who are the non-elites, the masses, who... The impression we get from polling in Russia, and I don't know how reliable it is, I'd love to ask you about that, is that United Russia, the party that uh, of which Putin is a part and kind of controls, is seems to be very popular, something like 70% support. They do very well in every parliamentary vote for the last quite a while. What I'm kind of curious about, and I, you know, I assume that as if the if Putin is very popular, that is another bolster to his political position in case there are elites that are against him. And so one of the things I'm curious about is, is United Russia actually all that popular? I know you have a very recent podcast about the mass protests five years on. So how much opposition is there compared to support? And if it is popular, why has United Russia been so dominant for so long among 
uh, among the people. Uh, you're asking a couple of separate questions here. First off, I think you're asking, is Putin popular? The second is, is United Russia popular? And then the question of opposition. So let me deal with the first about Putin's popularity. Great. So uh, Russia functions, uh, um, a guy I follow, a very smart guy who lives in St. Petersburg. He's an American guy. He's been uh, named Thomas Campbell, who um, has been living there for a very long time. He, uh, he introduced me to this idea of Russia being a polocracy. Russians are polled. I don't want to say more than any population on the planet, but they are polled a lot. They're polled by polling agencies, some of which are connected to the government, one of which, Levada Center, which is the one that's constantly held up as the independent polling outfit, polls the population. Then you also have internal polling from the government in which we don't really know much about because they're they're only for internal consumption. In the Soviet period, this was done by the police. I'm assuming the police continue to do it, uh, but now I think they do it more through actual polls rather than informants, which was the Soviet way of measuring what they called the mood of the masses. Now, the issue with polling of, of Putin's popularity is, first off, Let's say you're Russian, in your home, you get a phone call, and someone says, what do you think about Vladimir Putin? Do you approve or disapprove? (laughs) (laughs) Now, okay, maybe you tell the truth because you don't care, right? But you don't know who's calling. Yeah, they tell you I'm from polling agency X. Maybe they are, but you don't know. Okay, so let's say if you, you distrust the polls, like you think, so you just give the answer that they expect. Then there's the problem of, okay, well, one of the things that Putin has successfully done is he's eliminated every other alternative. So who else do you have but to say, I like Vladimir Putin? Because none of the other yahoos out there are worth anything. I mean, amongst the, amongst the, a group of scoundrels, he's, he's the best scoundrel. <laughs> you know, it, so it, it. the question is, I mean, the polls are actually really, really weird because on the one hand, I think the regime uses them as a, as a form of legitimacy. And then you get them reproduced, the results reproduced in Western reporting to make the claim that Putin is has an approval rating of 80%. Well, how deep does that go? What does it mean when you say somebody says, well, do you approve of Putin? Well, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, but what does that mean? That doesn't, that doesn't measure, we don't know how deep this approval goes. You know, we don't know how it actually structures how people understand the government and their, the world around them. Now, there's been some social scienti- scientists in the United States that have, have done some, some polls, polling in Russia that they, um, they claim his popularity is quite high. And I don't doubt that he's not popular. I don't think that's actually even the question to ask. Yeah, he's popular. He's certainly more popular than Western politicians are in their own country. I would probably peg his popularity a bit over fifty percent. But when you're when you're you're not competing against anyone, <laughs> it's it's not difficult to have a high approval rating. So I think through the poll, the polls because it's a polocracy, and this is what what Thomas says, and I, I agree with him, is polls themselves are a form of regulation. They're a disciplinary mechanism. 
Because what happens is, is you're polled. You don't know who's polling you. You give the answer. Then on TV, they show you the poll results. So everything reinforces each other. And so you think, oh, Putin's popular. If so many people think he's so great, then maybe he is great. So when they ask, if you get polled by some chance, you say, well, yeah, Putin's good. Right? So it, it, I think it's, it's more interesting, at least, to consider po- the, how polls function politically rather than what they actually measure. United Russia. Well, United Russia, the, the big question for that is, are they actually a political party? What are they? My suspicion, because, and their popularity in the, in the country is, yeah, they win elections, but they also dominate what they call in Russia administrative resources. They, they're on TV. They have advertising. They use their, their power, local politicians use their power to pressure people to vote. The fact that in factories they or in, in schools, particularly if you're a, um, a state employee, they basically tell you to go vote and this is who you vote for. Some people may genuinely vote for United Russia because maybe they have a good politician locally. Maybe they vote for them because, well, this is the party of Putin, this is Putin's party, so they must be okay. But if you look at the actual measures of how people feel about United Russia and the parliament and the government in general, you, they're actually quite low, which creates this weird contradiction. Because on the one hand, I'm saying you have high polls for Putin, and we should take these with a grain of salt. But then we have these lower polls for the government and United, the ruling party, United Russia. Now, should we believe them? Are people now telling the truth? Maybe they are. It's, it's hard to say. But the thing is, is that parliament in Russia, it functions a few ways. First, it functions as a legitimizing factor. It's to say, we have elections, we have a democracy, we have a parliamentary system. The parliament, however, doesn't really have that much power. Because in 1993, when Yeltsin blew up the the White House uh, with tanks, something that Western governments all supported, the next thing was putting voting for um, a referendum that made Russia into a super presidency. Now, the Western governments seemed to be okay with that when Yeltsin did it, but that set the stage for Putin's institutional power as president. So parliament is pretty much kind of neutered in a way. Another thing it serves as, though, it's I think it serves as a way to inject, try out certain feelers for policy and for laws. You get, you know, every once in a while you'll hear it gets read some news story about how Parliamentary X is introducing some crazy law about what, you know, homosexuality. And the media reacts and there's reactions and then sometimes you'll never hear about this law again sometimes it'll go forward like the the law that that basically criminalized homosexual propaganda i think it's there to kind of inject things to see the float ideas also what the parliament is in united russia is is it is a mechanism for corruption so if you're a parliamentarian from province, you know, from Omsk, let's say. There are local businessmen and local businesses that are looking for state contracts. 
So what you do, I mean, kind of not so different than the American system, but there I think it's far more transparent, ironically. <laughs> and that is they give money to the local United Russia office, and then all of a sudden they get handed down state contracts. So it's a mechanism for influence to, to for the smaller players in society to exercise influence and get benefits from that influence. Sure. You know, the people who can never rise and, you know, they're not going to get the Kremlin's a year, but they may get, you know, some Duma member from some provinces a year. Exactly. So some sort of mechanism exists to at least get someone's attention. It's just maybe not as transparent or straightforward as it is in the West, right? Yeah, I mean, it. It. I think there was an article. Uh, one of the Russian press did it. Did a really interesting article several months ago before the parliamentary elections, looking at how many. Where did the donations to United Russia come from? Now they get money from the state as a political party, like all the political parties do that are registered. But they also got a bunch of donations, and the donations came from local businesses and things like this. And it's clear. And sometimes they overlap. Sometimes. The local businessman is also the the party head of the of United Russia in the localities, right? So there is there is this. I think there is this mechanism for corruption going on. So I I definitely think that we want to also get into some recent actions that Russians been Russia's been taking, sort of on the international stage. In my mind, it's difficult to really understand what's going on unless you understand sort of at a larger scale the nature of the Russian economy. So. For example, we talk about how Putin became this linchpin at the end of, uh, or when the Soviet Union fell. You mentioned some about how the elite's abilities to continue generating and taking in rents is really critical to the system right now. And, of course, underpinning all of this is oil and the international price of oil and how this really kind of is putting timeline on Russia's abilities to continue to act. So what mm -hmm. I'd be curious to, to learn a little bit more about is... How, when the Soviet Union fell, how did all of these assets get doled out, and how is that impacting sort of the current lay of the land in Russia? Mm. Yeah. The privatization of Soviet assets happened under a, a few ways. Sometimes they happened... So the, the, the plan was to issue vouchers. So every, every citizen of uh, the Russian Federation would get a voucher in the amount of um, a portion of an industry. You know, like, so if you worked in a factory, you would get issued a voucher in which it says you own X amount of, of uh, stock, essentially. It's like a stock thing. And then they were supposed to take these stocks and there was going to be a market in which you could trade them. So, like, if you wanted to sell your stock to for cash, right? And then people would accumulate these things and own essentially this is how you get ownership. Private this is the privatization scheme. Now what happened was most people in most average citizens, you get issued a piece of paper and you're like, what is this? What do I do with this? Especially if you're hungry, <laughs> your savings is gone, you're unemployed, etc. So there, there are stories in which people are selling these vouchers for nothing, you know, just to get whatever because they don't know. And, and if you're a regular citizen, it's not like you're going to go around, you have the capital to scoop up all of these vouchers and actually become some kind of part of an owner of an industry. In other cases, you have 
in privatization that the guy who's running the manager of the company or the manager of the, of the factory essentially takes ownership of the factory because, A, who's going to stop him? And maybe he'll do it in some sort of legitimate way by buying up all of these shares, but most of the time it's like, well, who's going to recognize them in this sense? The other problem was was during the 1996 presidential elections, which there was a scheme called loans for shares. This is how the big guys got a lot of money. People like Khodorkovsky, Berezovsky, these big early 1990 oligarchs around Yeltsin. And this was a scheme in which Yeltsin was running for re-election in 1996. His approval rating was horrible in the single digits. There was a threat that the Communist Party would win the presidency, Gennady Zuganov. And in order to help the Yeltsin campaign, these oligarchs who had a lots of cash at hand traded loans to Yeltsin's campaign in exchange for shares in nickel, oil, aluminum, things like the big resources of the Russian economy. This is how they started people like Prokhorov started to own major pieces of the natural resources of Russia. Now, and these guys were playing in, have major influence in Russian politics directly. When Putin came to power, he presented them with, this is the way the story goes, he present, essentially presented them with a deal. We know how you got all you all got rich. Let's not pretend that you didn't basically steal everything. We all know. But bygones be bygones. You have your wealth as long as you stay out of the affairs of the state or when the state calls on you, you you respond. This is the new relationship. People like Khodorkovsky broke that deal. So he ran him out of the country or arrested him. He broke, he had to, one of the things he did was essentially break the backs of the oligarchy, the political aspects of the oligarchy. And if you're broken politically, then you're also, your wealth is broken and then divvied up amongst all of Putin's friends. <laughs> this is the one of the ways it happens. But one of the things you need to note about Putin's attacks on Russian oligarchs, there are more Russian oligarchs now than there were when Putin started breaking the ones in the early nineteen, early 2000s. His agenda has, for the most part, been incredibly oligarch-friendly. In fact, in a way, I think it's more interesting and possibly correct to understand Putin's rise to power as a class compact of the elite because he represents their interests. Now, with the economy shrinking, I already mentioned this need to say, you know, steal but not too much, but oil in Russia function the 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 budget for the Russian government is pinned to the price of oil. So how are they solving this problem with the oil prices low and the not being able to afford all of the the social services and things like this? Well, they're dealing with it with austerity. But it's not austerity for the oligarchy, it's austerity for the average Russian. It's the slashing of, of education, health care, so other social services. So given what we're seeing in Russia today, you know, we've talked about the economy and you've talked about how sort of there's more going on for 
how people feel about Russia and, and people's loyalty to Russia than simply the economy. But times are pretty tough. Russia, Russians have gone through tough times many a time in the past. One of the things I'm curious about is, you know, we talked a bit about some of the poll numbers, but if there's this sort of gestalt about how Russians feel about Russia, how Russians feel about how Russia is sort of performing, and in particular, uh, how they feel about the rest of the world, would you be... It, this is maybe this may be fraught, but is there? Do you have a sense of how Russia feels about itself, or how Russians feel about themselves and the rest of the world right now? My impression that things are quite mixed, in the sense of, on the one hand, they may feel a certain pride and even patriotism for Crimea, Russia returning as a player in global politics. You know, the role of Russia in uh, you know, Syria, for example, or the fact that Russia must be at the table for solving eastern Ukraine or things like this. There might be a, right, and, and this is not too unfamiliar to, to have a, a feeling of pride for your country being powerful. But at the same time, even amongst those feelings, you may also sense that the world around you and your immediate environment is not doing so well. So you have complaining about the economic situation, the cost of living, the prospects for your children, these more immediate things. And I think you can see, you can see this most vividly in labor protest. So for example, there's been a wave of labor protests in Russia over the last year, an increase in them by all accounts. However, these are very small and they're very localized. And people keep wondering, well, why, why aren't the, they blaming Putin? Because from what we can see from the way these protests are, are carried out, they blame their bosses, they blame local officials, and they strategically appeal to Putin in the hopes that he'll step in and solve, solve the problem for them. Like he'll, you know, get on the phone or chastise some local official or, or factory boss, company owner in, in public, in the media, and this will put everybody into shape. So you don't see, there's a lot of, my sense is that there is, there's a, a malaise, I think is probably the best way to put it. There's a, there's a, there's an increase in poverty. There's a decline in wealth for average people. There's a decline in the purchasing power of their salaries. There's an increase in credit and debt, credit debt in particular. So you may, you have this mixture of, on the one hand, you may have people who see some pride in Russia being strong on the global stage, but at the same time, feeling that things aren't going in the right direction within the country. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm really glad you brought up this this aspect of like the labor protests that are going on recently. Uh, I listened to the episode that you did with Steve Crowley on mm-hmm. yeah. labor class and conflict the other day, and I thought one of the most interesting things about that that interview that that stuck out to me was how historically there has been this emphasis throughout certainly the entire Cold War to focus on Kremlinology, right? And how there's mm-hmm. sort of this resurgence even today to focus on political activity and motivations at the highest level of Russian society, really completely leaving out this this huge bodied mass that is the Russian people. And how does this relate to some of Russians' actions recently? Well, you know, you have Russia intervening in, in the Ukraine and Syria, and a lot of commentators are saying, well, you know, Russia, at least in Syria, has almost no national interest, but they're doing it to rally some sort of national sentiment and get people off uh, the idea that there is some really significant issues going on domestically in Russia. Where does that stand today? Is is Putin and the regime still benefiting from involvement in Ukraine? Has activity more or less toned back in Syria? And what do they hope to get out of it now as it relates to the average Russian? From my understanding is that the, the serious stuff is in middle in the issues, uh, the situation in the Middle East is a constant uh plays a role in in media and you know nightly news and stuff like this so it's definitely uh on the agenda in terms of when you turn on russian television this is what you see on the news less so ukraine and and eastern ukraine in the particular of the conflict in the donbass less so that's gone off pretty much off the radar for the most part um and some people even speak about their this the assert um the the surge of kind of patriotic attitudes after the annexation of Crimea, which there was definitely what they call a Crimean consensus, that now too is fading, which is, you know, quite natural because you can't maintain, it's difficult for a state to maintain that level of patriotic fervor over a long period of time, right? You know, at some point it just becomes normalized and it be, people move on to other things. I'm very skeptical of, the. you hear this argument a lot, Putin's government is interfering in Syria to distract the Russian people uh, from domestic issues. Yeah, I don't, I don't even understand the evidence for this ar- argument, in all honesty, because, you know, we never would apply that to ourselves. We always, when we, in the United States, for example, intervenes abroad, it's not to distract us from, you know, the hardships of our society. Some people may argue that, but it's because we believe in what we're doing or at least the the government and the the rule, the people who are running the government believe this is what they're doing in for the sake of American national interests. So I don't understand why we wouldn't think that Putin is acting in what he sees as in Russia's national interests by intervening in eastern Ukraine or in Syria or wherever it may be. As for what the average Russian gets from all of this, I don't know because I haven't really seen much of anyone in many populations getting much from 
its country going and obliterating a people from the sky, right? In fact, now the the thing about um, and a student asked me this about a week ago, like how can Russia engage in these military conflicts, say in Syria, when its economy is doing so poorly? Well, the truth of the matter is, 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 as harsh and cold as it may be, is it's just not costing them that much. They're not, body bags aren't coming home with Russian soldiers. The troops that they actually are using are mostly special forces and mercenaries and advisors. They're not, even in eastern Ukraine, yeah, it's a major tragedy for people who live in eastern Ukraine. You know, the two million or so refugees. But for Russians, there's very minimal cost in terms of money and in terms of life. So what the Kremlin is doing is horrible, sure, but from the average Russian perspective, do you really feel it? Maybe, I don't know, but on a daily level, if your your friends and family and neighbors aren't, their sons are not being killed in the war, it just doesn't cost you that much. I think Syri- the Syria intervention certainly continues to perplex a good amount of people if this hypothesis that Putin's attempting to rally nationalist sentiment is not really a compelling lens through which to interpret the situation what are some other ways to understand it what are some national interests that Russia is deriving from this action well okay here is uh, from a Russian perspective just to, to state that just to make sure people don't think that I, I agree with this you look around the world in the last 15 years and you see chaos you see war in the Middle East you see revolutions or attempted revolutions in post-Soviet space you see the toppling of dictators or authoritarian leaders like in by military or by uprisings whether it be Libya or Egypt and then you see after those happen you see those societies descend into more chaos so from the Russian leadership of Russia, this is not this has been destabilizing. So a, a backing Assad is in a way an anti-revolution act. It's it's similar to to how Nicholas I responded to the revolutions of 1848, where he went and pro- sent in Russian troops to prop up the Austrian-Hungarian Empire from the revolution in Hungary. He's, he's kind of in this form, he's in both in eastern Ukraine, though that's a bit different, but in Syria especially, he's acting as the counter-revolutionary by supporting Assad. So it's not necessarily like, uh, you know, a love for Assad. I think if they had a better deal, they would sell out Assad in a minute. But it does, it does, it does act as a way to put an end to either Western-supported regime change or attempts within authoritarian states to undercut the sovereignty or the sovereign elected or sovereign ruler. I mean, this is their problem with what happened in Ukraine. It's not necessarily a love for Yanukovych. It's you have deposed through violence the the legitimate democratically elected president of Ukraine. And this is what, and they're responding to it in the sense of because Ukraine is a very touchy issue for them. They also don't want to see what you had, a contagion effect, as you see, saw first with the Arab Spring, 
where revolutions ignited throughout the region. They're certainly, I think, concerned about, say, if revolutions are igniting in Ukraine or revolutions are uniting, igniting in post-Soviet states, that this could have a contagion effect into Russia. And by destabilizing the Ukrainian government, it's actually, in a way, sending a message to, to the Russian public saying, see, this is what happens. You get chaos. And is that the primary objective for Russia in eastern Ukraine? I've, I've heard people musing that because it's a very Russian and pro-Russian population, they might want to annex it. I've heard, I've heard at least some reports that they're sending uh, passports like they did in South Ossetia. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So what's, what do you think is their, their sort of main objective? You know, what does Putin call a win in eastern Ukraine? And is there a chance of him getting it? Because it looks a bit like a quagmire as well. Um, I think the objective in eastern Ukraine is basically to just destabilize U- Kiev enough to to not allow it to move forward. To to add, I mean, granted, Kiev is doing a good job of it, doing that to itself, but essentially to to prevent Ukraine from ever becoming part of the EU or NATO, and by by doing what they're doing in eastern Ukraine. They're making the situation such that that can never happen. That will not happen. Now, I think there are other concerns. I mean, I think do think there is a concern for, uh, on an ideological level, for this kind of pan-Russian concern for Russian speakers or people who identify more as Russian in eastern Ukraine. I think that's a concern. I don't think that's a driver for their intervention and continued support for the intervention. I think it's it's actually just more cold-hearted <laughs> to to main to make sure Ukraine can't get can't get itself together enough to ever be integrated into the EU or in or definitely not NATO and to also send a message to other post-Soviet states a, a similar message because think of it this way so in 2004 in the Orange Revolution uh, the Russians certainly interfered. But they didn't interfere militarily. They didn't, didn't, they could have easily done, though this revolution in my done 2014 was far more sweeping in terms of violence and, and the government, but they didn't, he didn't act in the same way in, in, in 2004. I think this time he wasn't going, to, Putin wasn't going to sit back and allow for another revolution in a post Soviet state to go on without Russia taking a very active role in, in at least being at the table and deciding what's going to be the future of this state. And, and another thing, too, about what's interesting, if you notice about the negotiations uh, with Putin and uh, over the question of eastern Ukraine, notice that he doesn't really talk to Poroshenko. He talks to France and he talks to Germany. And this, I think, is a window into how Putin understands sovereignty. So by, from his point of view, there are only really a few real sovereign states in the world. There's the United States, there's Germany, there's Russia, there's Iran, China, uh, maybe India, a couple of others. Everyone else are basically protectorates or the tools of other great powers, of other sovereign, truly sovereign states. Therefore, why would Putin, from his point of view, talk to Poroshenko? Because for him, it's Germany you talk to. Germany and Russia are the sovereign states that decide 
the fates of smaller states who aren't sovereign. Because if they were sovereign, they wouldn't be so easily manipulated <laughs> from outside, right? So it's it's actually quite interesting, a window into how Putin understands the world in, in terms of he sees it as, and, and people have pointed this out, like a return to 19th century great power politics. Um, and I do think that that's exactly the type of world uh, he would rather have. It's a world of deals. It's a world of, okay, let's decide we have a problem in this small state. I'm going to go talk to the United States about it. I'm not going to waste my time talking to, you know, the ruler of this Ukraine. I think that's a really interesting idea that probably jars with a lot of conceptions of the world that Americans have, right? Something that we're certainly going to be focusing on in this four or five part series on reconsidering Russia is how in order to try to attempt to understand their moves, you really got to try to put yourself in, in the mind frame of someone else. Because, man, if that's how Putin's thinking about the world, it's just fundamentally different from how we interpret the international order. Yeah, or at least how we idealize it. Uh, that That's also a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that is right? a good point. Because, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, okay, if there's, let's say there's a revolution in Mexico tomorrow, do you think the United States is not is going to respect, if they don't support the gov- new government in, in Mexico City, that they're going to respect the revolution in Mexico? I mean, you know, yeah, we we made like to think the world is full of nice and sovereign people and sovereign states with all of their nice rights. But let's be honest here. The real way uh, that power works of great powers is exactly what Putin wants the world to be. He just wants it to be honest. <laughs> I mean, in a, in, if you take it in a really perverted way, right, that Putin wants actual honesty here. And I mean, if you take his comments about, you know, American or Western hypocrisy seriously, I mean, this is essentially what he's saying. Um, now, granted, one not need to like it or agree with it. You know, I think the fate of Ukraine should be decided by Ukrainians, both in the eastern part of Ukraine and the rest of Ukraine. Right. I think it should be decided by the people who live in Crimea. But unfortunately, I don't have any power. So who cares what I think? <laughs> so do, do, you, do you think the the American cultural tendency to idealize the way the world really is adds to some of this bilateral uncertainty? Because if Putin on the one hand is saying, OK, well, this is how it is. Let's be real so that we could you know, maybe gauge each other's intentions a little bit better. If everything from our side is clouded in the sense of, oh, well, this is how things should be, it basically makes it impossible for the other side to interpret any actions. Is that, mm-hmm. is that, is that unsettling? Is that adding to instability? What do you think? I mean, it, it's, it's unsettling and potentially adding to instability for two reasons. Um, one, it's unsettling because then it means that all of the supposed values that we cherish and preach about, you know, human rights, um, uh, sovereignty located in the people, rights, self-determination, uh, these essentially go out the window. They become reduced to the tools in which Putin is saying that they are, which is they're just basically mechanisms of Western domination, right? That human rights is merely the means in which, say, Western powers exert their power over other states. Now, if we got rid of all of this idealism, then it will be a very crass world, 
right? As much as we can, I think, criticize the United States for its abrogation of the very values that it believes in, the values themselves are still positive, you know? Um, so I do think that has a potential for, um, you know, all sorts of problems in this sense because, you know, the little people like you and me who nobody nobody thinks about will think about us. We're basically, you know, cannon fodder or pawns in the game. The other thing is, is that I do think, um, and this goes for all sides, not just for Russia and their annexation of Crimea, but it also goes for Israel and its, its slow annexation of the West Bank. It goes for the United States and its unilateral actions in the Middle East and its carrying out of drone warfare in the Persian Gulf, etc., etc. And that is, if it's just a world of deals, of pragmatism without ideals, then all these actions are equally justified. You know, how can we complain about, say, Netanyahu annexing the West Bank and, sub and subverting the creation of a Palestinian state if we're going to sit there and say, hey, we'll crack open a deal with Russia over the recognition of Crimea? You talked about a world of deals. Now I got someone I want to talk about. He's the best at making deals. He is the art of the deal. <laughs> nobody makes nobody makes deals like he makes deals. And he's president. And yeah, what I want to we can th this is probably the most the thing that is most on people's minds right now is uh, Trump's relationship to Putin. And I think there's a little bit of history to talk about it, the run up to it. And so that'll be my first question. But of course, you know there are cartoons about about like Putin riding Trump or puppeting Trump, stuff like that. Uh -huh. So I'll, we'll want to ask in a minute, you know, how much is that actually true? But possibly the, the most pressing question on people's minds is, you know, to what extent do you think Russia was involved in the United States election? You know, did it have a big impact? And what was Putin's goal or what does Putin hope for out of a relationship with Trump instead of Clinton? For the Russian intervention in the American election, uh, yeah, they intervened. I mean, you know, the question I have is, okay, they intervened, but was it effective? Now, some people will argue that it was because the some of the votes in some of the states were so small, such small margins that anything could have swayed people on this. I don't think that the, I personally do not think that the Russian machinations in the American election mattered. Um, I think it actually has become more of a convenient way to excuse the failures of others more than anything. It's what I call, it's, it's not what I call, but it's a form of psychological displacement in the sense of you have problems with the self, but it's much easier to deal with them if you put those problems onto another. Uh, it's, it's much easier to reckon or come to terms with the fact that this to be frank, con artist became president if you recognize that he's the result of machinations from abroad rather than someone who emerged from within ourselves. Uh, and this is, I think, very dangerous politically because if you use the Russian other as the source of your evil, you never really contend with the problems that allowed for, say, a man like this and what he represents to emerge in the first place. So yeah, I do. And what was Putin's goal in terms of? Uh, yeah, they they interfered with their hapless Russia Today television station. 
that nobody watches. Or at least nobody has presented any evidence to me that anyone watches on any great level <laughs> uh, to, to actually influence, say, the American electorate more than, I don't know, CNN. He, I think the, what the Russians were trying to do, though, is to essentially show that the American process is, is a sham. Is uh, is to delegitimize de- de- the democratic process. Now, um, unfortunately, he Putin didn't really need a lot of help to do that. He didn't have to do much to do that. That's again being done by the American political system. So uh, to to focus to inflate Russia's role or Putin's goal in all this is again what I would call this form of psychological displacement. Yeah, you can. I fully admit he tried to influence, but he's the least of our problems in this sense. So now that Trump is president, it does seem like Putin is pretty happy about it. What is? What do you think Putin hopes to get out of a relationship with Donald Trump? I mean, they seem to be on. They seem to be on better terms than Putin and other presidents of the past have been on, uh, which may even be putting it lightly. I don't know how much their friendship is overplayed, etc. But, you know, now that Trump is president, we've got a dealmaker at hand. There's all these things that there's a big Russian wish list, I'm sure, which is recognition of Crimea, possibly pulling out of U.S. pulling out of Syria uh, and letting it fall under the Russian sphere, possibly lifting of sanctions, stuff like that. Yeah. To what extent is is Putin likely to get some of his wish list from Trump? Is he going to play? Are they going to make deals, trade some stuff, play hardball? Are they just going to be buddies? We, we don't know. Because while everyone says that, you know, Trump has this admiration of Putin, I mean, honestly, outside of saying some nice things about him, we don't know what the content is there. And like with a lot of what Trump says, he says a lot of things, but what does it mean? We just don't know. We don't know. From the Russian side, my understanding is is that, and, and there's actually a really interesting discussion on the Power Vertical podcast this week um, that a friend of mine does. And he had Mark Galliotti on and another guy who's very connected in Russian foreign policy circles named Vladimir Frolov. And what Frolov says is actually really interesting because he says on the one hand, there's a split within the Russian foreign policy establishment. And I think it's important here to recognize that it's the Russian foreign policy establishment, not Putin as a sole person. There is hope and joy on the one hand, but also hesitation on the other because on the one hand they they view the russians may view a possible opening of some sort of understanding let's put it at the very minimal understanding between the united states and russia that we're going to we need to work with one another on issues and we will work with one another uh but we'll also not we'll not agree on some things, right? This is the minimal, I think, of the relationship that's possible. They don't they don't know because on the one hand, what Frolov says is that Trump is so unpredictable that they don't know what they're going to get. And in fact, in some cases, some in Russia believe that Clinton would have been better because at least they would have known who they're dealing with, right? They wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't have liked it. It would have been a far more antagonistic relationship from the outset, but they would have understood the language coming out of Washington and what's behind it. They don't have that now. There's also a feeling, Frolov says, 
that some in the Russian foreign policy establishment wants to consolidate Russian gains, so like in Syria or eastern Ukraine, and put more pressure to get what they want there. Some others want to basically just sit back because they see the Trump administration as incredibly incompetent and watch it destroy itself from the inside. So destroy American foreign policy from the inside. And then after that, we'll, Russians will move in and start doing what it wants to do in its own national interests. So there's a, they don't know what to, nobody knows what to make of what's going to happen until these guys actually get together and meet. The other problem is, is that Russia just doesn't have anything to offer. They, the Trump people have floated this idea of nuclear weapons. Well, nuclear weapons is kind of what they got in Russia. Why would they trade them? They don't, but, and they don't have anything else to trade. What? They're not going to trade Crimea. What, they'll pull out of the Donbass, okay, but they don't have anything else to give. So this is the other issue in the art of the in this potential deal between the Trump administration and Putin. Well, the, the United States has a lot to give in exchange, but the Russians don't really have anything much to give on their side. So it, it all remains up in the air. But I think for the Putin government, what they with the positive thing that they see is they I think they believe that the era of um, democratic, liberal, military intervention is over. And this enough, I think, is a, for them is a positive outcome. Yeah, I think that is increasingly becoming apparent as the domestic yeah. political will in the United States just isn't there anymore for those sorts of interventions. Yeah, it's not. And it's not Trump. It's already been exhausted. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's been exhausted already four years ago. I think, you know, to Obama's credit, a lot of people have written about how Obama has been a foreign policy disaster. I don't think so, from my perspective, because he didn't get us involved in another major conflict. He, he was very, very hesitant to involve the United States in any major way in another foreign adventure. And I think he correctly understood that there is no appetite for it amongst the American populace. Even after drawing that red line in Syria, he did, he walked back yeah. from it. Yeah, he walked back from it, and and frankly, wisely so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because we've been discussing sort of the United States relationship with Russia through one perspective, which is that of sort of relationships between leaders, and obviously that yeah. matters. Uh, there's a phrase that we picked up in one of our prior interviews that we liked using, which is called context shift. And if you're going to use one theoretical framework through which to interpret events, you can use another. And obviously, they're not perfect and there's gray areas. But if we're looking at relationships between the United States and Russia, uh, we were looking at it from the perspective of relationships between leaders. Are there larger scale trends that are out of the hands of actions that any particular particular leader can control that are driving our relationship, our bilateral relationships in one direction or another? Yeah, um, I think um, one of the ones that is actually it's sometimes recognized, but and from my view, not enough, and that is the the movement of the global economy. I don't. So, for example, one of the issues that people say is Russia needs to diversify its economy. And the Russians say this all the time themselves. But what does that mean, diversify their economy? 
are they going to stop their start their own types of manufacturing to compete on the global economic level? How? How are they going to do it? The market is already saturated. The best they can do is what they're already doing, which is to have you know Ford come in and open up plants in outside of St. Petersburg. Um, are they going to start a major like tech revolution and compete against an already established tech revolution that's coming out of India or the United States? There's not a lot of wiggle room for the Russian economy to break out of the malaise it's in and get off the, the natural resource tit. There's just no there's no wiggle room because if you look at the global economy in general, it's one it's been a trend in the last thirty or forty years of a boom bust cycle, jumping from one revolution to another, whether it's tech bubble, property bubble, whatever the bubble may be, but it, there's always a bubble, and the the mass returns of growth of the global economy in general aren't going to come from anywhere. I don't see, you may see aberrations of, you know, some state like China having a growth spurt, but even now the Chinese growth spurt is going down the tubes. So what is going to be the thing that's going to rescue the global capitalist system from itself? And, and you already see the political the beginnings of a political reaction to that in the form of right-wing populism, whether it's, be, whether it's in Europe or the United States or for that fact even in Russia, um, where globalization, the, 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 the tensions created by globalizations, the tensions created by neoliberalism are, are now seeing manifest in a political reaction that's unfortunately mostly on the right, but it's coming on the left as well. And the, the, the guardians of the liberal democratic capitalist order don't seem to have any solutions. So looking to the economy slowing globally, obviously uh, in Russia, it, as you said, it doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. It's attached to a large extent to its commodities, which are taking a ton of pressure from the United States, particularly due to fracking, the Bakken oil, um, oil sands will do the same thing. OPEC can't seem to agree on a limit. Um, under Trump, it's likely there's going to be more offshore drilling, etc. So I wouldn't predict that oil prices are going to save Russia anytime soon. If we're looking at the long-term trend, it seems like their economic out outlook is not great. Their demographic outlet, or outlook also does not seem great. Russia's economy is shrinking. Um, people like people aren't getting married or having kids, and so what do what do things look like long term for Russia given all this? Um, I, I think that Russia's problem uh, is more increasingly a political one than an economic or even a social demographic one because Russia has always been it's been underpopulated for a very long time. I don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not an expert or even profess to know much about demographics because, and I see the demographic thing all the time, and I've seen other pushback against it. That you know, if you look at Russians, Russia's demography, it's in terms of birth rates and stuff. It's it's not all that different than Euro Western Europe in terms of like people having children and stuff like this. But Russia is a very large landmass that is underpopulated, particularly in the Far East. I don't, I don't know how that will play out, 
But I do think it, like I said, that problem is a political problem. And that is the Putin system in its first, even in its second term. So for the first eight years, 2000 to 2008, it was dynamic, politically dynamic. Now, granted, this was helped by two things. One, high oil prices, but also because it was providing exports to growing economies like China or India and things like this, or even the EU to a certain extent. It was it was able to export its natural resources. But it, it seemed politically dynamic. Now, the a political agenda of the Putin government, nobody knows what it is. I don't even think they know what it is. Because it's becoming increasingly ossified. And I don't see how politically they're going to be able to break out of it to inject new blood and new ideas into the system. Um, and I think that this is going to be one of the main dilemmas next year for the presidential elections. So the question is, you know, Putin has been very adept at transforming himself. He transformed himself in 2012. He transformed himself in 2008. Who, he, who is he going to become now? And can he become enough of a different type of leader to inject some kind of dynamism into the Russian political scene? To move it in a different direction to at least... to And I'm not talking about democracy or anything. Forget about democracy and all this stuff. I mean actual, the ruling elite of the country to invigorate the political scene to get new approaches to how to run that place. I don't see where it's going to come from. I have um, sort of one question that is not necessarily directly re related to the conversation that we, we just came to, but it's referencing a book review that you wrote. And it was kind of a, a sentence that stuck out to me, or actually uh, two sentences that stuck out to me. You wrote that, um, and this is a review for um, Mr. Putin, the operative in Kremlin. Mm, very good book. Um, I, I definitely added it to my Amazon queue after reading the review. But this was this was an interesting uh, this is an interesting line to me. You wrote that Putin is the. Uh, ultimate international political performance artist referencing the book and then you said that you would call him the ultimate postmodernist what exactly did you mean by that he is very good at narrative and controlling narrative so for example um if you look at his uh his four hour plus call-in shows every year his direct line with Vladimir Putin trademark um, it's all about controlling narrative. It's not necessarily... A, a lot of people like to focus on facts and truths and non-truths and lies and things like this. I don't even think that's the point. The point is about narratives and creating narratives that are repeatable, believable, and productive. And Putin has been very good because he seems to lack, as far as we can tell, any solid ideology that he can manipulate and become a chameleon and change without contradiction. So in this sense, he is he represents to me this free-form play of signs and symbols that you see with postmodernist or post-structuralist theory. He's able to knit all of these together and its contradictions don't necessarily blow them apart. 
So he can be, he can on the one hand play a nationalist, Russian nationalist rhetoric, but still not be a nationalist because he has to rule over a multinational country and a multi-confessional country. He can address the, um, you know, a crowd of Muslims in Moscow and at the same time strike out against, you know, Chechen or Chechen or Dagestani terrorism. It, I think this is what I mean by this, that you, he can't, every time you think you pin him down, he slips from under your finger. He's just kind of like whatever he needs to be at the moment. Uh, a lot of question marks. Yeah, whatever. And he's, and I think also what adds to this is the, the constant mysteri- mysteriousness of him, the cult around him, and not just the cult of, of him that's produced in Russia, but the cult that's created about him in the West. That he... Um, is you know all of this talk of like well he's always a KGB agent well maybe so but I don't know we don't know he a man this man has more I forgot I don't I read somewhere and I haven't been able to check but some, I read somewhere that it was stated that he has more biographies written about him than most politicians who are still alive yeah you call it Putinology yeah there's a whole there's a whole and that's the thing too there's a whole mythos. There's a whole discourse and there's a whole industry of Putin production. And and that goes from the little dolls you can find in markets in Moscow and posters and t-shirts to these profiles you'll read trying to get into his soul in the New York Times or whatnot. This attempt to diagnose, you know, diagnose him psychologically. And the way I see this is that this doesn't allow us to crack open any truth about Putin, I think it actually adds to our inability to really try to get at what's going on in Russian society by creating this, you know, figure. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It, 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 it. It's fascinating to me because it is this kind of, this construction of a figure that is mysterious and dark and shadowy, um, and we think we can understand that society through him. I can't help but think whenever I, I hear the the idea, the concept of postmodernism and stitching together different disparate threads. I used to go to this cafe when I was in college, and you know they had like twenty different types of coffee, twenty different types of lattes you mm-hmm. can order with a small, medium, large, and they had price and descriptions of all of them on the board. And um, there's this one called the post postmodern latte. <laughs> And, uh. and the description and the price for the three different sizes was just a bunch of question marks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like uh, Putin. That's, that's a very nice <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, that's a very nice metaphor. And and you get, I mean, now with all of the, the hysteria and, and insanity in the Russian press, you get all sorts of crazy things being written about how, like there was an article a few weeks ago or last week about if you read Dostoevsky, you can understand Putin's psychology. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, uh, if you one, I was reading some article that that told a story from Putin's weird autobiography from 2000 about how if you look at this story where he 
as a child, he and his friends used to torture rats. And at one point, little Putin, nine years old, faced off with this giant, huge rat that he Putin had cornered. And the rat decided to attack him back. And through this, Putin understood that when you put something in the corner, it strikes back. And it's like, my response was, who knew, th- who knew that a huge rat was Putin's biggest foreign policy like uh, <laughs> advisor? I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. They call it grasping for metaphor. Yeah, it's just it's completely ridiculous, and and it feeds into this you know weird Orientalism that uh, uh, Westerners and Americans have towards Russia. Which, frankly, I've been doing a lot of reading about Russia and American relations in the nineteenth century. And what's fascinating is is that Russophobia did not exist in the United States in the nineteenth century. It started to develop in the late after the eighteen eighties, but before. There was no Russophobia. Russia, the relations between the United States and Russia were actually really friendly. So much so that Russia was the only great power to support the North in the American Civil War. It's a really fascinating history that nobody ever talks about. And, you know, we only think of our relationship with Russia on, in the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union. But that prehistory... Uh, from the American Revolution to, you know, 1917 is pretty much forgotten. I now want to have, like, a whole nother show on how <laughs> Russian-American bilateral relations shifted from the Revolutionary War to the late 19th century, but uh, that'll obviously take more than a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Sean, anything else you want to share with our listeners? Anything that's on your mind before we sign off here? When you look at a place like Russia, or you look at Russia and its history, um, to deal with it in proportion, and you have to not allow it to fill both your fears and your desires. And the sense of, going back to this comment about American-Russian relations in the 19th century, there's been a long tradition of within the United States of wanting to free Russia. This is a, from a very excellent book by David Forlingson called uh, The American Mission in the Evil Empire. It was published about 10 years ago. And he charts, Forlingson charts the history of American intellectuals uh, and others, politicians, wanting to see what one American called a United States of Russia. That we want Russia to be like us. And it plays a very interesting role in the American imagination. And then when it doesn't appear like us, when the hopes of it becoming like us fades, then it takes on a position of darkness and evil that is just as exaggerated and idealistic as the idea that Russia should be just like us. And I think that we have to somehow try to deal with that place for what it is and not for what we want it to be. Awesome. What a great way to close. I've learned a bunch. I'm sure our listeners have. Sean, I'm so grateful that you joined us today. For everyone listening, You're welcome. Uh, remember, if you want to learn more about Russia uh, and every th- all the wackiness that goes on there, learn more about its relationship with the rest of the world and the United States. Uh, Sean's Russia blog is the place to go. The New Yorker actually listens to it as a source so I'm a big fan. It is Sean's, S-E-A-N-S, Sean's org. 
and you can get both his blog and his podcast. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Remember, dear listeners, about Russia and everything else, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. And this is Sean signing off. Cheers, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.